Hello, and welcome to the Not-So-Secret Source podcast, where we open source the secret source. I'm Adam Wayfield, Managing Editor at Founders Factory Africa. Welcome to the podcast. On this wintry afternoon in Johannesburg, our topic for the day is the fine print of VC, with a particular focus on the evolution of simple agreements for future equity, aka SAFEs in the context of early stage venture funding in Africa. With that in mind, I am most pleased to be joined by two awesome guests who have the knowledge, repertoire, and expertise to dig into the history of SAFEs in an African context and their relevance in today's ecosystem. So first, I'm very pleased to welcome here in Johannesburg, Tando Sibanda, Deputy Head of Legal at Founders Factory Africa. Tando holds an LLB from the University of the Western Cape and a Masters of Tax Law from the University of the Vivatasrand. He has over a decade of legal experience in corporate and finance law, garnered at some of South Africa's most esteemed law firms and at IDF Capital, where he led their legal function. Tando is also extremely knowledgeable about the finer points of whiskey, as a complex a substance as the law, some might argue. Tando, thank you so much for joining us here on the Not So Secret podcast today. How are you? Thanks, Adam. I'm good. Thanks, man. How are you doing this one? I'm very good. Thank you. What's more complex, whiskey or the law? <laughs> <laughs> so, man, I only learned whiskey a few years ago. The law has been quite a journey for 10 years, but uh, whiskey is nice. It makes the law sound so <laughs> smoother. Uh, as long as you're not digging, digging into Latin. No, yeah. thanks. Thanks for, thanks for being here, Tando. Very much appreciated. Sure. Thanks, man. And second, but by, by no means least, joining us from Lagos is Lumi Mustafa, head of legal at Founders Factory Africa. After earning his bachelor's in sociology, uh, a bit of a departure for a lawman to do that, Lumi, focused on organizations, mass media, and economics. Lumi would later graduate from the University of Law in the United Kingdom with an LPC and BL Honours from the Nigerian Law School. Lumi has over a decade of legal experience across multiple fields of law, including IP, media, finance, technology, telecoms, and venture capital. A former special assistant to the governor of Ogun State in Nigeria, Lumi also happens to be the non-executive chair of the Music Publishers Association of Nigeria. Lumi, welcome to the show. How are you? Hi, Adam. Thanks for having me. I'm great, thanks. Pleasure to be here. Good. I must admit, I was quite surprised. I didn't know that. Uh, that you've had your involvement in the Nigerian music industry. Are, are you a particular fan of music? Do you go deep in that respect? Yeah, I used to go very deep. I mean, um, long, long time ago, I was a, a music producer and an artist. And then uh, after a few years, I started taking more an interest in the business side. And that happened to coincide with when I was returning back to law study. So I sort of combined both at the time. And the rest is history, as they say. Yeah, the, the rest is history. Okay. Now, when, you, when you're back in, in Joburg, or if we see you in Lagos, I think I know I'm, you're the man I must speak to. It's about local music taste. <laughs> Not too much pressure no worries. In, in that respect. <laughs> no, but also, thanks thanks very much for joining us. And yes, I am very interested to learn about SAFES and also how to use the full power of FFA's legal eagles, the legal expertise for today's topic and their context within Africa's early stage venture environment. But before we get serious and into the fine print, just a quick stretch of the mind to get going. We're going to have a very quick lightning round of hot take I'm going to give each of you a topic, and please each share your first gut reaction on that topic. Are we ready? Yep, ready. I'm ready. Excellent. Right, Lumi, since I introduced you second, just for the sake of honor, I will ask you to kick things off. First question, blended whiskeys. Used to know a lot about them, but don't know anything anymore because I've moved to clear spirits these days. Vodka and gin. <laughs> okay, well, delve into that subject for, for another day. Tando, yourself? <laughs> so blended whiskeys for me are like a box of chocolate. You never know what you're going to get. 
that could either be spicy, smoky, sweet, rich, but I'm more of a single malt guy. But yeah, I'm a, a man who knows what what he <laughs> what he wants. Indeed. Uh, two intellectual property. In the era of AI, Tundo? IP in the era of AI is, I would say, it's complex because nowadays you never know who owns who. Is it the AI? Is it the one who inputs the code? Or is it actually the ultimate consumer? AI owning IP. Again, I'll ask you about that later. And yourself, Lumi? Yeah, I think Tando's pretty much covered it. But if I can just use an analogy, it's uh, the law is like a house. AI is now a bulldozer that's coming in to make sure it has to get rearranged. There's no way around it. Okay, no way around it. Well, I think... We all know this. AI is only going to become more sophisticated. Three, in reference to my very bad joke earlier, Tando, Latin's use within the legal system. I don't know if I should start with one, but I must say <laughs> Latin is just a flex for litigation lawyers, right? Because you don't use it in modern language. And some people say it's unnecessary, outdated, but it's still relevant in particular in the courts and having to interpret legal agreements. Okay. Lumi? Yeah, well, I have a soft spot for them because, you know, a lot of it stems from British law on which mm. a lot of jurisdictions base their law. So it was something that, like uh, Tando said, it used to be a big flex for us lawyers where it sort of sounds like we're talking in like <laughs> in another language, literally. Um, but it's a dying flex. Unfortunately, I'm very dying flex. No, but it's always good if you could drop a bit of Latin in a conversation, you know, to really sum up a point. Right. They have to explain it, like as they do it on TV shows. So I, I think flex yep. <laughs> is the right word. Flex, indeed. And, and lastly, I guess, especially for you, Lumi, as um, a man who goes deeper to the music, I'll start with you. Privacy in the digital age. What's your hot take on that? Gosh, it's another one similar to IP and mm. AI. It's something that's increasingly going to change, but it's complex because people seem to have a culture now of just putting out their private business. They're out there on their own volition. And I think the law might have to get tweaked to uh, accommodate for that fact. But it is something because data is the future. It's mm. the new oil, as we say in Nigeria. So, yeah, it's an unavoidable thing. Looking forward to seeing how it develops. Mm. Tando? I was about to respond and say, what privacy when we have smartphones? <laughs> because, you know, it's seems like you know everything is all out there now with social media and everything out there as Lumi said that you know the laws are evolving with time in South Africa there's introduction of PI and all of that mm. of legislation that speaks to human rights and privacy so it'll be interesting to see how that evolves with time yeah I'm half expecting to be served ads on YouTube now about maybe VPN generators and that sort of thing because I know my phone is listening to me as yep. speaking, speaking blended whiskeys <laughs> yeah, don't be surprised whiskeys. to get blended whiskey recommendations yep. <laughs> expect those ads <laughs> <laughs> no, thank you. Thank you both so much. And also for humoring the listeners and those topics we discussed. You could do a whole podcast on them. So I'm very glad that we got your initial thoughts. But it's time to delve into today's topic, the evolution of safes in the context of early stage venture funding in Africa. So, Lumi, I guess we'll, we'll start with you. And at the very beginning, when does equity enter the conversation between an investor and a startup? What does a typical agreement between these two parties look like? I mean, just to give a general context, businesses need investment to grow and scale their businesses. In an ideal world, a business wouldn't want or need to get outside investment because it should theoretically be able to actually reinvest in itself from its own revenues and profits over time. The challenge is that most tech startups don't fit this model. And the aim is to develop the product or sort of gain customers' traction and scale as quickly as possible. Hence why there is this sort of match whereby uh, startups have to go out and find investors. So with that being said, startups usually start entering into convos with investors usually once the business starts to show some sort of traction or has hit what is in the ecosystem known as product market fit. Now, 
the way we at FFA define product market fit is when a business is at a minimum showing growth in its users, stroke customers, the retention of those users. So that means they don't just sign up and then drop off and no longer use the service. And lastly, their engagement with the product while they're using it. So if we can, if a business starts showing that progress in terms of growth in those kinds of areas and other areas, then usually it's at that stage and investors start to become interested in the business. Because the point is they can see then that there's actually a product that's been developed. It solves a problem, which is sort of shown through the user growth and that those who it's solving the problem for are enjoying the product. And that's sort of shown in the retention and engagement metric. So once a business gets to that stage and it really wants to then get some additional capital to be able to scale what it's already developed in those in terms of that traction, that's usually when the conversation with investors start. Before I stop, there are exceptions. Hmm. People that enter in at earlier stages, those are usually sort of incubators and such, whereby they're willing to invest to help a founder validate the business model even before they maybe develop a product or start getting customers and retention and engagement. But those are rarer. So the more common is when the startup has already achieved those sort of initial milestones, they then usually start getting into conversations with investors. In terms of a typical agreement, and I'll turn this over to yourself, Tondo, after Lumi weighs in here, what are the basics that, that, that usually enter any agreement between an investor and a startup? So, I mean, it's always good to start with a general overview. I mean, what what is the essence of the relationship that's going to occur between the startups and the investor? Mm-hmm. And in general terms, the relationship involves the investor providing capital, that's usually in the form of cash, but also mm-hmm. usually in the form of advice and providing access to the investor's network. And in return for that, the investor receives a stake, i.e. shares, in the startup as well as usually some rights in relation to managing that startup because they've made an investment in it. That's really the core of what the relationship is. And it's based around that core that the terms in most of these agreements arise. So given the risks in investing in startups, investors also usually seek additional protections. But like I say, all these kinds of additional things stem from that core relationship that the investor will provide capital and in return secure shares in the in the actual startup but the difficulty that commonly occurs is that the question of how much of a stake i.e the the number of shares an investor would get for its cash is usually where Mm -hmm. the discrepancy arises because that's now a function of both the startup and the investor agreeing on the valuation of the startup. And it's very hard to do valuations for startups because the general practice for calculating valuations is usually based on a function of a business's, ideally it's free cash flows or it's profits or at the bare minimum it's revenues. And a lot of early stage startups, particularly those in Africa, at the stage that they're in where they're requiring this early stage investment, they haven't been able to generate revenues or they're not revenue generating or let not to talk of profits or cash flows. Mm-hmm. So it's difficult to arrive at valuations. And that's what usually becomes the problem that was needed to be solved, not just in Africa, but originally in Silicon Valley. So that startups at the earlier stages before they have these sorts of revenue metrics or profit metrics can still quickly get cash from investors, despite the fact that they haven't been able to agree re-evaluation with them. So that's really the problem that occurs generally when investors and startups are are trying to agree on an investment transaction. Mm -hmm. And it's that problem, ideally, that the safe note was developed to try and solve. But we'll get to that later. No, exactly. I just wanted to quickly get Tundra's perspective. In a sense, it's about the definition of value. 
between the investor and a startup. You got the legal text that you find in paper, Tando, but in terms of the interpersonal relationship, before we quickly move into safes, how important is it that an investor and a startup have some sort of a rapport with one another when they're entering such a legal agreement, just based on your experience, I guess the qualitative nature of the negotiation, how important is that? Most VCs actually back a jockey more than the product mm. because a lot of founders, you know, in the market, they may have be smart, they may have the skill, they may have, you know, the right product that is scalable and that, that can reach different markets. But at the end of the day, character and that rapport is quite important. And mostly during DD, that is what you experience a lot because now you have to go on the ground, meet the person, find out what they do, meet the team. So that rapport is actually quite important because at the end of the day, you're going to have to require some information rights from mm. those people. And what you see most in the market is that, you know, once an investor has deployed capital into a founder and the founders receive the cash and they're running, you know, then there's no more reporting. You expect some form of updates and what's happening, where monthly management accounts, you know, where the financial statements, what's happening in the business, and then you don't get that. But if you establish that, that rapport initially, establish that relationship, then it makes life easy because, you know, before you can actually back the product itself, you know that the person that you're mm. dealing with, the team that you're dealing with, has got the right skill, the capacity, the knowledge, the know-how, and also the networks to make the product work. So I think that rapport is quite important to kick off the relationship. And I guess that, that that moves us into safes. I mean, safes, correct me here. It's almost if you're a bit further down the road. They do stand for, as I said, simple agreement for future equity. In what circumstances do safes become relevant when a VC or venture builder interacts with a startup? Why they need it in a nutshell? So I think limited, you know, shed a bit of context in that. There's a there's quite a number of reasons because you are investing in a startup that is no traction most of the time. And also, of course, depending on the context, but at the time, mostly you find that, you know, there's no revenues to demonstrate. Mm-hmm. You know, if you come in early, early, super early, you know, you can't even value the stage of the business, where the business is at. You need a safe, which generally would be will solve evaluation mismatch because some founders may have high expectations in terms of what their business is worth and how a VC would value it. So to reach a middle ground, founders tend to be comfortable to use a safe because that, at least they can use a standard agreement with mm-hmm. multiple investors, just agree maybe on a, you know, evaluation cap. Um, from an investor's perspective, also, you don't want to buy something too high. But at least if you're coming into the safe and you say that, you know, we're going to put in this safe and then once you raise around a price round or reach a certain stage or a milestone or once certain triggers occur, then you get to convert the safe into actual equity. Then you actually own the value. But also in the importance as well is, let me say that, you know, it simplifies the process because financing, you know, um, or rather the legal aspects of a financing product that's generally quite expensive. The processes are quite tedious. That super early stage, no one has the funds, you know, at least from a startup perspective to engage lawyers to, you know, come up with these complicated instruments. So from a founder perspective, you're safe, at least it's quite standard, it's vanilla. They understand the language, you know, it's being used across in the market. From a VC perspective, also, you know exactly what rights you're going to get. If you need additional rights, you negotiate them on the side. So at least both parties, there's like some sort of alignment in terms of what is the right product, what is the right financing instrument to kick off the relationship and generally a safe would be that type of product. I guess that leads me to my next question, Lumi. How have safes evolved 
over the last five to ten years within an African ecosystem context. Why are they important? And maybe just for a bit of background, have they always been part of the ecosystem? Have they come over from Silicon Valley or is it more of an African context thing? What's your perspective? Yeah, I mean, you said it You said it yourself. Silicon Valley is really where these things were originated with a Y Combinator. Generally, startups that come through the Y Combinator program and then raised funding both from YC and third-party investors started using this instrument that YC developed for the reasons Tando mentioned, the affordability, the flexibility, and to make sure that things can move quickly. And of course, African startups at, in the early, the earliest African startups that entered YC cohorts would use the same instruments. And of course, if they were now raising a subsequent save from other investors, they would obviously use the same instrument also. So that's how sort of how it got introduced into the African startup ecosystem. And of course, the, the evolution of, of safes used by African startups has, has more or less exactly mirrored the evolution of safes in, in Silicon Valley. Again, linked with YC. Safes, mm. at least in, in that context, evolved from being what are called pre-money safes, which effectively means that we don't really know, an investor doesn't really know what stake in the company they will get when their safe actually converts. But then they, it has things built in to reward that investor, such as a discount rate on whatever price the, the startup sells its shares to another investor in future in a priced round. It evolved that way from a pre-money safe to what's called a post-money safe, in which case now, because of something called a valuation cap, investors are able to sort of not negotiate a valuation but a sort of floor of a valuation or mm. ceiling depending on what perspective you look at it from so that effectively if the founders now raise an investment in the future to actually sell shares where the company is valued if the value of that company is more than the valuation cap agreed with the investor the investor would get the lower price again these sorts of mechanisms are built in to sort of reward the earlier investor for taking more mm. risk. Similar things, like I said, have, have evolved in the African market and African startups that are using safes, both those that were in the YC cohorts and others because they would just simply follow market practice. The same principles have occurred here, but we've been finding over the last five to seven years that given some different key dynamics in, in the African startup ecosystem compared to Silicon Valley, safes, whether pre-money or post-money, in their in their standard form from YC don't really cater for the particularly investors' needs in the African context. So that being said, we found that there's, because of some key differences in how the, the journey of startups from idea, product market fit stage to when they actually are in a position to secure priced investment is that it's a longer journey. Mm -hmm. Safes in Silicon Valley evolved really effectively as a sort of bridge round where startups know that they're going to imminently close a priced round, but they're quickly running out of money. So they just wanted to quickly get some money in now to keep things going whilst they finalize and close a full priced round. And so the investor that's providing the, the safe investment sort of knows that it's, it's going to be a relatively short term thing. And at the end of it, he'll either elect a, he or she will either elect to collect shares in the business or just collect their money back, which is part of the terms of a safe. Now, in the African context, because of the longer lead times from when a business in its early stage gets to product market fit and then gets to a point where it can actually secure seed, pre, seed and Series A investment, mm. 
it takes so much longer that if we find that the safes are no longer just a bridge round, but founders have to go out and raise more and more safes and effectively stack, as we say in the industry, safes on top of more safes. Investors have not liked this because prior to the post money safe as well, they could never tell how much dilution they would take or how much they would own of the company at the point they do convert. And also they found that a lot of businesses, just because they had difficulty getting to a stage of raising a priced round, investors actually never ended up getting the, either their money back or shares in the company because safes usually convert in one of three events. Um, and that's usually if you raised a priced round mm. or if you get acquired or go on an IPO or if you're looking to just dissolve the company. Obviously, the, the last of those three is not the ideal. The first two are, are the best. So none of those three uh, occurrences were happening in a relatively reasonable amount of time and a lot of investors found that they were just sort of floundering having given money to founders and they do have a safe as evidence of the money they gave but those safes were in effect meaningless because they couldn't either get their money back mm. or convert them into shares and it's for these sorts of reasons that safes use in Africa is starting we're starting to see changes in that with additional provisions and terms in the way they're structured. That begs the question and Tanda I'm going to turn it over to you I mean Lumi's in a sense described the context of what's happened how is the behavior of VCs and startups change to drive these changes? Is, is it a question of de-risking the process? Also, and I'm going to be naughty and bring in the macroeconomic environment, because I know post-2020 COVID, the ecosystem was awash with funding. You probably send a deck to Silicon Valley, possibly get funding, but funders are a lot more careful now. Has that even influenced the, the, their behavior towards using SAFE? Or do you think it's just a natural inclination of where the market was going or macroeconomics and they're being tied to interest rates going around, a confluence of all of them. Just in your position, how is the behavior changing? And, and if I'm yeah. a VC and yeah. <laughs> sitting in the United States, what am I thinking about when it comes to safe yeah. and dealing with an African startup? I think as Lumi said, that we are seeing a lot of changes in the market. You know, VCs are now demanding more protections than previously mm -hmm. because, you know, traditionally you just get a safe that with all of these provisions that says that, you know, you're only going to wait for a funding round or a liquidity event or an exit event for you to convert. And more often in time, you'll know, you find that, you know, founders will then just take up safes, you know, for a number of years, you know, without giving the investor the actual ownership because there's just safe upon safe, safe upon safe. Therefore, to avoid such instances, some investors have sort of like tailored some products or changed how they approach safes. And what you're seeing in the market of late is that you are seeing, you know, what, what you call a safe with a maturity date, hmm. right? Where an investor would say that if you don't raise a round within three years, the safe is going to convert into shares. So, which means that it actually obliges the company to convert the safe into shares, therefore giving an investor an actual right. This is one of the ways just to mitigate the risk of just having to hold this instrument, which you can't use it to, you know, get any demand in court. If the founder decides to go rogue without reporting or without doing certain things, there's nothing you can do because you just have this piece of paper that means nothing in law per se, because it doesn't give you actual value and ownership mm. in the business. So you get this approach where you've got now all of these added protections and what you would see also is some investors that would demand and say that, you know, if there's a liquidity event in the business or, uh, you know, or what they would refer to as a liquidation preference that, you know, I want a guarantee of my money, you know, times are set in multiple. Some investors can be as aggressive to say that, you know, if there's a liquidation event, I want a guarantee of my money times two or my money 1.5 times uh, 0.5, you know, so you, those are some of the ways in which some of the investors have 
have kind of like, you know, approached the safes or rather the protections mm. in the safe just to solidify the contractual relationship. Because in law, you know, a safe is just a contractual obligation between the two parties, but actually it doesn't give you any form of rights. So the sooner you can get a conversion event, the sooner you can actually own a right and be able to call the shots on at least, you know, get a bit of a stake in the business. And also additionally, some investors would sort of like dictate what terms they want to get post-conversion. Mm. So for example, assuming there's no funding ground that occurs and after a number of years, you know, investors will sort of like say that, okay, if there's no funding round, we want our safe converted. And when we convert, we want, you know, to get a preferred stock or preferred shares. So basically those are preferential rights that you get more than what ordinary shareholders would get. You know, generally it would entitle to the preferred shareholder to be first in line whenever there's a, a dividend or to the extent that those shares are not participating, but at least in the event of a liquidation, you know, then you get those shares to be participating first in line. So you get all of these type of protections just at least to try and make sure that, you know, with this safe, there's all of these protections because as you say that, you know, it's risky to invest in this in this space because, you know, it could go right, it could go wrong. The least you could do is to contractually to have some terms that could at least afford you some additional rights in the event that there's a conversion event and you actually own the shares. So these are some of the protections that at least you get. You see some that you would see in the market and is anti-dilution protections where an investor would say that, you know, should you issue shares at a price at, uh, which is less than the value in which you acquire the shares for at the time of conversion, then you need to issue additional shares to me so that at least, you know, there is no dilution from an investor perspective. So those are some of the ways in which some of the investors kind of like sort of crafted some terms and protections to, you know, increase, you know, their bargaining power once mm. it's a conversion event and once they own the shares. It's almost creating additional complexity in trying to manage a founder cap table. And Lumi, I was going to ask you, use the word power, are the use of safes and the, the increasing complex nature of safes helpful to the ecosystem? Are they, are they changing the dynamic or balance of power between founders and investors at the negotiation stage? And I'm going to go back to that helpful, helpful term again. Is it, is it a net positive or net negative for the ecosystem at large? What's your, what's your perspective on that? I think if you look at it from a short-term perspective, of course, it seems that a lot of the changes that Tando has highlighted that we're, we're seeing more and more in the market seemingly favor investors to and arguably then to the detriment of founders. But ultimately, I think that the key thing is that investors have found that they require additional protections for the reasons we highlighted. That's just from their perspective. And really, the ecosystem needs as much investment as it can get. So from that perspective, I think it's important that investors feel comfortable as that will encourage more investment. On the other side of it, though, of course, you're right. It's increasing complexity for founders and these sorts of additional terms that investors are requiring are resulting in founders having to negotiate them with investors and to negotiate, say, for, you know, experienced founders that have founded businesses in the past. Again, it brings in the, the, the additional costs of legal representation, which we have to make sure don't become so high because of negotiating these new terms that it defeats the whole purpose of why safes were created in the first place. And mm -hmm. they were created in the first place primarily to help founders to be able to get money quicker without having to agree valuations and, and as such not having to pay the associated legal fees with negotiating and documenting these investment transactions. So I think we're still a way off from that becoming an issue. I still think safes are, as they were designed to be, even for uh, African startups, they're extremely flexible, affordable, and they allow founders and investors to be able to close on these early stage investments quite
quite quickly. But like I said, ultimately, we want a scenario where investors feel most comfortable to be able to invest and invest more. And obviously, we don't want that to be to the detriment of startups. But ultimately, I think startups that get capital and are able to use that capital are the ones that succeed. So ultimately, whilst in the short term, it might seem that things are getting a bit more difficult for founders, and that also plays into the wider macroeconomic changes. Mm. It's a difficult fundraising environment. So it's not surprising that it's sort of now at this stage where, let's say, the market is more on the investor side, that investors in African early stage businesses are starting to try and leverage th th this position they're in to try and get better better rights for themselves. But I still think it's good for the uh, ecosystem in the long run, but we just have to keep track to make sure that it doesn't become so complex that uh, it defeats the purpose of a safe and we might as well just go back to doing seed priced rounds and, and all the associated stress and cost and time. Thanks, Liam. I think that's a really sophisticated answer. We don't want to get to the point where investors are using safes as a cudgel just because we're in a difficult funding environment. Ultimately, if it's a standard legal agreement that both founders and investors can use for their mutual benefit, then the ecosystem is in a healthy place. But Tando, you spoke about, I guess, when you talk about, forgive me, I think it's not a liquidation event, or when, when there's a legal event occurred, forgive me, I don't have the, quite the right <laughs> term that you use. From the enforcement side, from your perspective, if I'm a founder operating, and I'm going to use the three largest markets in sub-Saharan Africa as an example, in Kenya, South Africa, Nigeria, do you have any any insight to give about enforcement as you said i say it's just a piece of paper yeah. but it's a question of enforcement from your perspective how valid or effective are the enforcement mechanisms within these legal systems and so this question yeah. is coming from <laughs> coming from a person who doesn't understand the broader legal environments i'm asking you to carry a heavy burden yeah. <laughs> answering this question sure safes are quite new in the african market and, you know, there hasn't been much developments from a company's law perspective that takes into account, you know, this safe. Because, you know, I would respond from a South African context, you know, the Companies Act doesn't contemplate, you know, a safe product. You know, but what you see is something which the Companies Act refers to as an option, where a company issues an option to a new or a third party that entitles them to a certain stake in the business, but save, you know, the way in which they are structured because, you know, obviously they were inherited from the YC combinator. Generally, you're going to have to tailor them to local markets to make sure that they at least are consistent with the local company laws. So from an enforcement perspective, in the South African market, we actually haven't seen, or at least from where I stand, mm -hmm. I I haven't seen, you know, a matter that then has to go to court where a court has to adjudicate, you know, based on a safe because, you know, uh, at least from my perspective, but what I can, you know, comment on is that, you know, it is a contractual obligation at the end of the day. A company is entering into a contract with an investor promising that investor that in exchange of money, they will give them a right to acquire shares. So that on its own, I'm sure it can be enforceable in court because the obligations of the parties will be laid out nice and clear you know, each party will be clear in terms of what they need to deliver. And to the extent that there are any breaches, any aggrieved party, and if it's an investor in this case, is entitled to either ask for specific performance, which is then demanding that the company issues shares. Let's say, for example, you know, the company then closes around but fails to issue the shares. Mm. You know, you can then demand that, you know, the company issues the shares or, you know, um, ask for damages. Yeah, I'm interested to hear what Lim says in the Nigerian market, if there's any developments from there. But, um, from the South African context, that's what is currently present. No, no, thank you, Tani. You just uh, took the words out of my mouth. Lumi, just your comment. I think that's the right word here. Your comment from a, a Nigerian perspective um, in terms of what's happening in, in your own legal environment. Very similar to what Tando said. We're yet to see 
any courts in Nigeria pronounce or make pronouncements regarding safes. Um, and that's because, as we've seen uh, so far, we haven't seen any disputes that have arisen out of the safes. And of course, under our own Nigerian Companies and Allied Matters Act, which was actually revised in 2020, still doesn't provide anything that remotely that, that, that's specifically called a safe as a, a recognizable instrument. But like Tando said, it does, the act does recognize other similar sorts of what are called converting securities. And if I recall correctly, but don't quote me, I'd have to check my my karma is that converting securities as a term appears in the Companies and Allied Matters Act as a sort of umbrella catch-all. But uh, assuming it's not uh, that I'm uh, misremembering and it's actually in another law, I know that for a fact that options and warranties and such, those kinds of converting securities and instruments are recognized in Nigerian law. But obviously, when it comes down to the safe itself, Regardless of whether it's recognized in Nigerian law, Tando was absolutely right. It's a contractual obligation. Now, of course, based on the reasons we've been saying on this on this pod, that um, it's not ideal for investors the way it was originally drafted because their rights only kick in, as Tando said, if and when some of these events where the safe should convert have occurred, but the founders have not done the right thing and actually issued them shares at that point, it's just a simple contract relationship whereby the obligations of one party to another are enforceable in a court of law. But a, an interesting nuance is that um, generally the safes we see and that we use, the governing law or for the safes is usually the laws of the country in which the startup is. Sometimes that can be a bit risky for investors. So that is something investors also sometimes change and they change it to a, 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 the jurisdiction of a country that recognizes safes that it's proven as such. So that's another slight nuance as well. But ultimately, it is a contractual relationship. Of course, the, the lack of recognition in various companies' acts around, around Africa really only speaks to the sort of statutory rights that one could expect and sort of the rights that an investor could expect if they had any of the instruments that are recognized in those laws. But aside those, the contractual obligations and the rights to enforce them are still very much active and recognized in at least nine. Nigerian law and the South African law, as far as I'm aware, as well. So on that basis, they uh, they do they are an instrument and they are a legally enforceable instrument. But one has to understand that context of what rights they are able to enforce and the fact of whether or not they have any additional rights from the local statutes related to companies in each of those jurisdictions. Mm, this begs the question of the role that uh, so-called startup acts how they've been developed, how deep they've been developed, whether they've been developed in parallel or in conjunction with the relevant company's law. And also you mentioned domicilium, which is, oh, that's a whole, yeah. <laughs> that's a whole can of worms. Yeah. Let's not go down exactly. the can of worms in terms of where a startup <laughs> is registered. You're talking like the Delawares of this world that's very popular yeah. these days within the ecosystem. Yeah. To approach it from a founder's perspective, what what should a startup be looking for during negotiations with the VC to feel confident in the VC's approach? and commitment to them as an investor. I know as FFA, we kind of wear both hats, but if I'm a startup, what tips can you give them in terms of red flags, so-called when you're negotiating with a potential investor that they should be looking out for, um, particularly at that negotiation stage, at the fine print stage, that they should maybe think to themselves that you're not dealing with a party who's negotiating in good faith. What are those flags, uh, just from your perspective? Yeah, so I think 
most most of the time there is a misalignment between what founders want and what investors want. But what is very important for founders, at least, you know, is to understand who the investor is. Also, founders must do have, must do a bit of DDs because of late, you know, there is a lot of you know these VC funds that just pop up from nowhere without any track record. Of course, there's first time VCs, but it's very important for founders to also do their due diligence to understand, you know, who are these investors, what's their ethos, what's their mandate, you know, who have they invested. And is there an alignment between what we want and what they want? Because some investors are maybe more impact inclined and less commercial return inclined, mm. whereas some others may be more uh, commercial return and less impact. So it's, it's very important that there is at least an alignment of interest. But most often than not, and the question of good faith always comes into play because, you know, you want, you know, to work with a party that has got your best interest at heart. And generally, most uh, uh, during the uh, DD stage and those early stage in, uh, engagement, there's generally a sense of light in terms of what each party wants. And I think founders must also be specific with their investors to say that this is a partner that I need. If you just need someone who's just going to give you cash and walk away, be specific. If you need a partner that will expose you to networks, like for example, what Founders Factory does, where we're just not going to give you cash and walk away. You know, you get a, a partner that will expose you to networks, that will mentor you, that will give you support, that will, you know, show you around, basically be like your coach. I think it's important that there's that alignment Mm. Because in certain instances, you find founders that just want the cash and they don't want any support. And that's where the misalignment starts between the VCs and the founders. So it is very important that expectations are clear from both parties. And if they need to be in writing, all of the commitments are clear. If there are separate undertakings that an investor requires from a founder, all those must be clear and must be agreed to upfront so that at least there's a, an alignment going forward and um, both parties are happy. And uh, I just, I've got to know for our listeners that these are very much live experiences because yeah. naturally we're in go- we're negotiating as if founders factory africa with with startups interested in entering the portfolio sure. but ultimately as ffa i think as you know tunnel the interests must be aligned and shared. Yes. Um, otherwise, if there's no shared understanding of value, problems will arise. Exactly. Okay, I, I, I wish we can keep talking, but I'm going to have to stop there. I think we're about to, to hit the time on the clock. So a massive thanks to our guest, Tana and Lumi Mustafa, for sharing some of their time with us on this episode. I found the discussion highly educational, especially not, not coming from a legal background. But I feel like I've gotten 10% smarter listening <laughs> to both of you, so thank you very much, as I'm sure our listeners have too. And to everyone listening, Keep well until next time. This has been the Not So Secret Source Podcast.